The Weekend Variety Wireless. All right, the world of human statistics. Let's rip straight into it with Ipsos Research Director Jonathan Dodd, and we're looking at Brexit attitudes in the UK. Oh, this will be fascinating. Hi. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that. Wake up this, wake up. Um, this week, and obviously, Theresa's got an awful lot of interesting things going on, and um, a lot of people disliking it. And even though some people might think Brexit's not really do with New Zealand. It's actually um, how people are voting and why, which is a really interesting insight into the way people think, which we'll be getting onto in a moment. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, yeah, the um, world's biggest sort of constitutional hangover, I reckon. <laughs> so yeah, for something been... for something like this, when they kicked it off, I thought, really, are you going for just a 50-50, you know, first past the post, 51%? Oh. Something this big, you'd think... Uh, you'd want, like, the United States can't change a constitution unless you get two-thirds of Senate and or the House of Representatives, I don't know which it is, but two-thirds to pass something. Yeah, and I think with our... I think with us, when we have referendums, like with flags, MMP and stuff like that, they build it in, so it's not just 1%. It's got to be compelling, you know. You've got to yeah. like 60 or 70%. Yeah. But anyway, when we... um. We asked the we've asked these people in the UK, you know, obviously about this kind of an issue, and um, 44% said that the most likely outcome, 29th of March next year, which is the due date, mm-hmm. is that excess um, UK will leave the EU without a deal. So it's 44% saying no deal, only 29% saying there would be one in place. So um, yeah, and I mean it's interesting. This this week we've gone from yeah, there's a deal to. Well, you've actually got to have a prime minister who already supports and enough people in Parliament for the deal to be going ahead. That's a tough that's thing. I, I, I actually feel for Theresa May. She's having oh, to do. Oh, she's having to swallow a rat. Really, she doesn't want to do oh, it, but she's got to. I know. I know. You got to wonder how much ego you got to have, or to be fair, perhaps a, a feeling of um, public service to go ahead with what's going to be the shittiest year in your life. <laughs> yeah, that's something that. you don't want um, to do. Look, you can make compelling yeah. arguments on both sides. I think it's been really, really fair and unfair and besmirching a lot of the attitudes towards those that voted for Brexit, calling them racists and xenophobes. There are plenty of compelling reasons. For God's sake, Angela Merkel this week uh, said oh, but the EU should have an army. Hello? Yeah, I know. Well, when you look at how the EU and, and, and the United Nations sort of got together, that... You know, somebody from Germany saying let's have a really big army. It's a bit of a worry. Yeah, and as, um, as if Norway's a basket case. It's not in the EU. doesn't want to be. Well, and that's the thing. The Scandinavian countries that always go out, they're wonderful. They're incredibly homogenous, huge taxes, and now they're actually getting refugees. The cracks are starting to show. Yeah. And I think the same is to be said from when New Zealanders are appraised for their attitudes to immigrants and refugees and that. It's like, well... We don't know. Well, we, yeah, and when you don't have them all carrying up at the door, it's very nice to have a very high-minded attitude yeah, until yeah. push comes to the stuff. Yeah, and, and there's, there's trouble with, you know, the EU. It's like f- flatting with people. And one of them invites in uh, 15 friends and doesn't tell anybody else, and they can all sleep in your room too. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Greece isn't paying the rent. <laughs> no. They're invited Greece. <laughs> that's, that's, they're thinking of towing Greece out to sea and sinking it. Yeah, well, well, it's half of it's underwater anyway. Yeah. You know, you've only just got to wait. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so and only 7% think the UK will not leave the EU. I actually find that a little surprising because a lot of people think, I, I just had the impression a lot of people thought it just won't ha- happen. 
Yeah, uh, I'm thinking that a lot of people think you've got to leave. It's just whether there's a deal in place. Mm. I, I, don't, I think that will affect a lot of people not realising that's an option. Yeah. I um, mean, because some of this stuff could happen. Yeah. yeah. And I, I sometimes I, I draw a comparison. Uh, I think it's fair. Uh, it's like a, a, a really toxic relationship that European Union is saying, if you leave me, I'm going to smack you over. You know, it's, it's yeah. yuck. What sort of well, marriage is that? Well, that, and that's the thing. And, of course, like I guess when you look at those sorts of relationships, often um, it's the appeal of the alternative that might make you mm. feel evil or stay. Because yeah. um, when they've actually asked people saying, well, what do you think will actually happen when you leave? Well, you actually be better off. You know, and generally, uh, around about half say, oh, well, the economy should be about the same over the next five years as a result of leaving. But 31% saying it's going to get worse and only 14% saying can you get better. So yeah. if you've got an attitude, you're going to think it's worse, twice as likely and better. Um, and all these other aspects we looked at, like things like, do you think unemployment, how that's going to go? How about, you know, does this just mean you're going to get more money from other countries? And yes, so most people are, well, you know, a big chunk of people are saying that unemployment's going to increase 29%. There's a 29% thing decrease. Yeah. Uh, you've disappeared going. down a tunnel, Jonathan. Shift to where you were before. Yep. Yeah, good. Yep. How's that? Yeah, great. Right, well, you picked me up for slouching my chair. Sort of thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's have a look at these. I just want to go over those stats again because I find them um, uh, pretty interesting. That 46%, that's you know nearly, clear, nearly half, of course, um, w- the economy will stay about the same. I just hear so much doom about Brexit that it is economic suicide. I thought that would be like 80% would be thinking it would get worse, but it's not. It's not even half. Yeah, yeah. And you've really got to also think, what's, I mean, the really interesting thing is when you just see how um, how this stuff is different between those who voted to remain and those who voted to leave. And we'll talk to this in the past, that once you commit to a, a form of action or a belief, you're much less likely to entertain alternatives and, and stick by your guns mm. and and whether it's selective perceptions or not, because, yeah, those who said let's remain, 64% said economic growth will decrease. Those who said leave, only 17% said it would decrease. Yeah. So you've got these huge differences. And, of course, some of them, are, you know, it's going to be well-founded. Some of them won't be. Um, this is the sort of thing, that, that 46% of all of them uh, saying that the economy will stay probably say about the same. That... The Guardian didn't print this. It'll go against the narrative. Oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. And, I mean, um, 46%. I mean, what it actually just shows is a whole bunch of people expecting the status quo and not knowing if it's going to go one way or the other. Yeah. And that doesn't make for an interesting news story, does it? No, no. All right, uh, any other Brexit stats you want to bring up before we uh, get into marketing psychology? Well, um, no, I actually want to get into the psychology because I actually think it's quite related. Okay. You know, and because when, when the Brexit vote happened, you might recall that the really interesting analysis was across age groups. And, you know, the way people voted, age was one of the most defining variables that influenced how they voted. Yep. And uh, you might recall how generally the younger they were, the more likely you were to say remain. The mm-hmm. older you were, the more likely you were to say leave. And it, the whole conversation I thought was really interesting because as soon as you start talking about age differences, then you get um, the politics of age differentiation coming in. You know, you're either complaining about the millennials or you're, or you're making disparaging comments about the old, mm. you know, 
So it's either the old people and, and of course, age is often associated with xenophobia and racism and all these other issues. So I don't want to get into that because that's just really getting into crude stereotypes. Yeah. About, you know, the old versus young. Hurry um, up and die. What a lovely thing they said. Well, well, what I thought was really interesting, though, when you had to stop and think, well, what do older people know or experience yeah. more than the younger people? Because in, in what's a different? I thought one of the key things, of course, is that older people are more likely to be able to compare the current UK with the old UK, i.e. in the years before they were members of the EU. And I had a look, and that was 1973. Yeah. So you might remember, what it was like in the good old days in the 50s and 60s. And let's go back to those days. Let's go back to the days without all these immigrants. And well, they, they, so, they can remember the peak point of UK uh, power, which I, I think was cultural power. They had the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who and Cat Stevens, all within about one kilometre of Soho, Carnaby Street, Mary Quant, the Mini, and they won the World Cup. That's not bad. Yeah, although bear in mind that all that rock revolution came about as an actual rejection of all the old British stuffiness. So it's quite funny. Yeah, but it was hot, though, when they weren't in the yeah. EU, were they? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you have to look at this thing. It's a vote for the past because people, the whole nature is we, we try going to EU, you didn't it, let's go out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the younger people that have always known free and easy border border crossings, um, more open to new experiences, and that's something we know at age young you are, the more open-minded you are. Yep. Um, it's just an age thing, and again, I don't want to make value judgments, but if you weren't open-minded and exploring the world with bright, wide eyes when you were younger, it's a pretty sad thing, you know. Yeah. Growing up is all about taking on new ideas and stuff. So anyway, I looked at this and I thought, let's actually about nostalgia. And I looked into this because it's the whole psychology of nostalgia. And I had to think, well, all these people voting to leave, was this a nostalgic vote? And when you actually look into the psychology of nostalgia, it really is known, and it's interesting how it increases during times of transition and alienation and disruption. Yeah. You know, when things are going bad, you think about the good old days or when you're, you're, you're something bad things happen in your life or you're split up with jobs or relationships or anything like this. You know, you think about the good old days. And, I mean, you talked about the football then, and the Brits are still thinking about the good old days with George Best, and they could do good stuff. So now, you know, we've gone through massive globalisation and change in the last 10 or 20 years, and it's only very natural to go, this is scary, I don't like it. If we vote um, leave, we're going to be able to, you know, get back what we used to have. Yeah. And if you don't have that nostalgia, then, of course, you can't be nostalgic for a past that you didn't know. The trap being historical nostalgia. And, you know, I was in England in the 60s and that great time that you uh, you talked about. I don't know whether you were. No. You're not that much older than me. But we look back at that and we can actually feel nostalgic for a time that we didn't personally experience. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so... Well, that, that's what uh, Austin Powers was a popular movie. Hardly anyone was there and experienced it, but, man, it's yeah. swinging. Yeah, and, and frankly, when you look back in, in the 60s and stuff, you, we tend to forget that, hey, yeah, the 60s, gay bashing, illegal abortions, rampant racism, rampant sexism, yep. terrible technology, backwards medicalisation, yep. incredible class system. You know, we don't think that. We think All of that, but the music was good. All of that, but the music was good. But yeah, you forget <laughs> the bad bits, don't you? Yeah. Exactly. So when you're harking back to that nostalgia, you know, there's the saying nostalgia isn't what it used to be. 
Um, we've got to be remember that. I think this big vote was about a vote for the past. And unfortunately, post-EU 2019-2020 UK will not magically go back to all the good bits of the 60s. And that's where people are now getting a real big shock and going, oh, crap. Um, mm. We're not going to get back to the good old days. And if there is anything that we got back, we're going to lose a lot more. And yeah, the, if they voted for nostalgic of, reasons, no, it's 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 not going yeah. to walk, but work. But um, yeah. they, a lot of people might have voted for strategic reasons of autonomy that feels good too. Yeah, well, I mean, that's when you're looking at like, the likes of Scotland or so forth, had you yeah. vote to remain for strategic reasons, yeah. So um, for listeners that are thinking about this, and, and we can sit there and hassle the, the older people that, that, um, that use nostalgia or voted for a, a gilded past that wasn't quite the way they remember, you just have to remember that all our memories focus generally on the good bits. Mm. You know, so we're, we're all... We're all um, we're all liable to these sorts of mental problems. So when we look from afar and point at the bricks and laugh or sneer or look look in shock, well, you know, I have to think well, if we were in the same position, yeah, we could well have done the same thing. We don't know how lucky we are, as John Clark said. God, I miss him. All right, <laughs> thanks so much, Jonathan Dodd. That's human statistics uh, for today. Coming the weekend variety wireless. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Last week for Enviro News, we had a look through New Zealand reptiles, more reptiles in New Zealand, different species of them, unique to this country than there are birds. And it was great fun learning about them, finding out just how rare and range-restricted some of them are, some of them only represented by a single animal that's ever been discovered and never seen again. It's kind of weird because they hide. The book, uh, cons- uh, the book in concern is Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand, a field guide, and it's a cracking field guide, just what a field guide should be. We didn't even touch on the amphibians last week, so he's back for part two. Dylan Van Winkle, part of the team that put this together, along with Marlene Bailing and Rod Hitchmout. Dylan, welcome back. Hi, Graham. Yeah, Hi. thanks for coming back. It was good fun learning about the uh, the reptiles last week. Um, we didn't touch on snakes last week, did we? Uh, no, we didn't. No, mm. but we don't have snakes. Do we? Oh, do we? No, we do. So a lot of people don't know that. We, we actually have four native uh, species of snake. No, we don't. They, we do. They're, <laughs> they're all um, marine species, so sea snakes or sea crates. Um and although they're native to New Zealand, they're vagrants, so we do occasionally see them in our waters. Right. Um, one of them, the yellow-bellied sea snake, is, is probably found more frequently in our waters, especially in the warmer um, coastal areas of around the Kermadec Islands. And, poor nights? Uh, yeah, they have been seen in the poor nights. They, they're a pelagic um, sea snake. What does that mean? mean? Basically means they, they spend most of their time, all their life out at sea, drifting around in the open ocean. Uh. Um, we do have three other crates, uh, marine crates, which occasionally get washed up on our shores or get brought down here with some tropical storms and that. They come from New Caledonia, Pacific, Australia. Uh-huh. Um, but they're all, all of them are, they're all part of the, the lapid family. They're dangerously venomous. Um, yeah, I understand sea snakes, they're the champions at venom. You think of your taipan or, or something in the dusty Australia 
nothing compared to the venom of a sea snake. No, yeah, and that's right. And, and if you think about it, the, you're drifting around in the open ocean, you don't come across prey items very often. So when you do come across them, you want to have enough venom to, to tag them and you know they're going to die and you can secure that food. So they have this really, really potent venom. Mm. Um, and it, it is toxic to humans or potent to humans. And, uh, you know, if you get bitten, it's a serious ordeal. So these things get washed up on the beach. If you see them, you know, it's best to stay away. Or if you see them swimming around the poor nights when you're diving, yeah. um, just just leave them alone. Right. Give them a bit of space. Are they angry? Will they come at you? No, no, they... They're disinclined to bite, and they actually have quite small mouths with small teeth. So they need to sort of get a hold of you and do a bit oh. of a chew to deliver the venom. But you, you just be you safe and sorry, it. yeah. Has yeah. anyone been bit by a snake in New Zealand like that? Not as far as I know. We haven't had any right. venom. And it, it's a serious ordeal. I mean, if someone was bitten in New Zealand, we don't have any anti-venom here. And it's sort of the situation where that person would need, either need to be flown to Australia if the, the bite was bad, or anti-venom shipped in. And, you know, in that time, the venom's going to cause serious damage. To the what does it do? So it's a, it's a neurotoxic venom. It basically breaks down tissue... Oh, sorry, it, it, um, it's neurotoxic. It stops the nerve impulses going to your muscles and you essentially paralyzes you. It stops you being able to breathe and you have a cardiac arrest. Oh, hell. <laughs> How often are these things found around here, this yellow-bellied monster? Well, we usually get one or two reportings of, of sea snakes every year. Um, and like I say, up in the Kermitic Islands, the yellow-bellies are probably there mm. um, most of the year. We, none, of the, none of these sea snakes breed in New Zealand. Um, so it's just during the, the sort of May period, May, uh -huh. April, um, we see a lot of records when they get sort of pushed around with storms. None found in Dunedin, but gets as far south as Westport. Yeah, yeah. So we've had... And those are probably stranded animals. Um, and we should say as well, I mean, when they get pushed down into these colder waters, um, they, they can't survive. So a lot of the animals we see are washed up dead on the beach or, okay. or don't have long to live here. Yeah. All right, let's move on to uh, amphibians. It's just frogs, uh, isn't... Well... It, as far as our endemic species go, it's just frogs, right? Yep, that's correct. And like so much of New Zealand's natural history, um, it's a frog. It won't be doing what other frogs anywhere in the world are doing. <laughs> they are the weirdest frogs around, aren't they? Yep, the weirdest and most wonderful. So that New Zealand frogs, we have three species. They are the most primitive um, frogs in the world. The most ancient. They're about 200 million years old in terms of their genetic or their, their lineage. Um, they're related to only two other species found in North America in the genus Escaphus, and they they're primitive in that they they don't have um, eardrums. They don't have vocal sacs. They have very poorly developed uh, hind limbs, so they don't jump. They basically crawl around. Yeah. Um, just very different and a different sort of lifestyle to the frogs you people know about. Yeah, and they don't make a noise, do they? They don't croak. So they, they do make little squeaks and squeals if, if they're distressed. But, um, yeah, if you, I mean, if you hear a frog calling, it, it's certainly not going to be a native. They okay. Yeah. And they're incredibly small and very, very well camouflaged. You, would, you may have passed some and never, ever seen them. Yeah, almost certainly. <laughs> okay, 31 millimetres for Archie's frog. Uh, it hangs out in the Coromandel and uh, Western Waikato. Yep, correct, Fororino Forest. Okay. Yep. 31 millimetres long, that's barely there. 
Yeah, it's it's tiny, and like you say, you can three centimeters, three centimeters long. Yep, up to that's a big one. Yeah, so they do they do occasionally get up to four centimeters. <laughs> if it's a stretch, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, three and a half centimeters is about about the max. All right, uh, pretty rare and precious things, and uh, quite variable in their color too. This Archie thing. Yep, so Archies, uh, they're probably the most stunning of all our frogs. Um, you know, bright greens, browns, uh, even some of them are quite red mm. or pink. Um, and the other two are, are sort of drab brown. Okay, uh, and they ha don't do the tadpole thing properly? No, not, not in the, the true sense of a tadpole. So two of the species, Archies and the um, Hamilton's frog, mm. essentially lay eggs and those eggs, the little larvae develop straight into to froglets inside the eggs and hatch out as basically miniature versions of the adult. Mm. The Hoxtetus frog is a little bit different, so it lays eggs in shallow pools. Um, the larvae hatch out, they, they do look vaguely like a tadpole. They have a, a little tail that they're able to, to move around mm. uh, and partially develop limbs, but they don't feed. Um, so they just sort of hang out in this water and, and develop really quickly into to little froglets and then disperse off and far out. Okay, Hoxtetus frog, uh, easily the most common, if you we could call it that, although these aren't abundant animals, are they? Um, no, so they, I mean, they can be locally abundant at certain sites. Mm -hmm. Hoxtetus frog is the most wide-ranging, it's across the Upper North Island. Um, From the Brindewan south, and you'll go to the Uruweras and then it runs out. Yeah, and then it sort of peters away. Um, so, like I say, it's it, these seldom visit sites. I mean, if you in a lot of the forest patches, um, in like places in Auckland, if you're like the Waitakere Ranges, uh, in certain stream catchments, there'll be quite high numbers of these frogs. But the distribution is quite patchy across the entire range. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the rarest, of course, is Hamilton's frog, and that's only in the islands around the Marlborough. Yep, Marlborough Sounds, just a few little islands down there. Okay, what's its deal? So, the, the, the Hamilton's frog is... We don't, we don't quite know why it's restricted to such a small area. Um, the Hamilton's frog is previously thought to be two species, the Stevens Island frog and the Maud Island frog. Mm -hmm. um, and this has since been... They've been combined into this single species because oh. they look the same and they basically have similar genetics. Um, but it, it, that one there on Stevens Island, the, the frog lives in a single uh, rock scree, um, which is now fenced to protect it from tuatara because they like to get into there and right. eat them. Uh, on the other islands, they live under the forest canopy and under small rocks and where it's very moist. And, and we don't really know why they have such a highly restricted... They seem to be pretty susceptible to predators, mm. uh, mainly predators, like things like rats and whatnot. Um, but yeah, they're just yeah, they're a nationally nationally critical animal. Yeah, uh, do we know of frogs that have gone extinct with it, or you know, through the fossil record or anything? Because if you have a look at the Hamilton's frog, uh, would have been close to have, it would have been easy to have lost it and not even know we had it. Yeah, yeah. So we we know of from subfossil bones collected in cave sites. We know that there were three other species of Liopelma frog, which is the genus that they're all, all the frogs are in. Um, they, were, they were larger than the current frogs, um, and it, 
seems that they may have been here just or may have disappeared shortly after human arrival. Okay. Um, rat arrival. Yeah. Pacific rat, rat arrival. Pacific rat, exactly. And dog, maybe. Exactly. Curry. Yeah. Um, so those, we've got sub-fossil bones there. Um, there is the potential that there are some of these, under, un, you know, populations of frogs and new species so lurking somewhere in you know, mountains of Fiordland or, or right. some areas, you know, cause, because they are so cryptic. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's... Hard it's, to spot in remote places, who knows, because when you have a look at Hamilton's frog, it's just on those dotty little islands. Dotty little island, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, we do, there is, interestingly, like, there is some, some actual fossil uh, material from some amphibians from about 200,000 years ago that uh, it, one of them is the stereospondy, which is a, it's a two-metre-long amphibian, and that, those, that material was found in New Zealand. Yep, two metres. Uh, had sort of bulging eyes on the top of its head, long needle teeth that it used for snatching um, what we think probably fishes and, and things. And was this Alan Tennyson and the St. Bathans dig or something? Yeah, I, I, I'm not actually sure where the material is from. Um, but 200,000 years ago, that's yesterday geologically, isn't it, biologically? Yeah, yeah. So that's, it's, that's when we were sort of still part of Gondwana. So, but the material is found in, has come from New Zealand, so we know that they were living on the land that we now call New Zealand. Two metres uh, long? Two metres long, yeah. Um, and it was sort of a, it wasn't the, the body, it didn't have the body form of a, of a frog that we think of today. It was more of a kind of a salamander-type looking thing. Okay. Um, All right, let's... Yeah. Talk about our exotics then, um, because those are the ones we hear and people often think, oh, that's lovely, we have frogs. Um, are they pests or are they okay? Yeah, so they, ooh, it's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they're not, I mean, they're, they're nice to have and they're nice for people to be able to see and hear frogs and, um, you know, I like them and their, their impacts on our native ecosystems, um, they certainly do have an impact. So they are a primary vector for uh, this chytrid fungus, which is a oh, yeah. virulent, uh, you know, disease that's killing off in frogs around the world. Um, and they, they certainly spread that around New Zealand. Um, and we also know that they, they basically frogs eat whatever they can fit in their mouth. So they're eating a lot of our native invertebrates and they're even eating our native lizards. So we had an interesting sort of story where we were up with Rod Morris actually um, in Whangarei mm -hmm. and we found... Great naturalist photographer, yeah, yep, and, and campaigner for years, yeah. Yep, and we were doing some surveys for quite a rare lizard that had recently been discovered up there, um, the Furanaki skink, and there was a, um, a dead frog that we found up on an, under a log and so Rod decided, oh, let's open this thing up and have a look and see what's in there and there was a... So we did that, and inside the gut there was a freshly eaten Furunaki skink, which is a, a nationally critical, um, poorly known lizard. So they're eating our native uh, lizards, even some of our critically endangered ones. Wow. Yeah. Uh, just regarding the chytrid um, infection that is killing a lot of frogs, we haven't got a lot of Hamilton frogs to spare, and we haven't actually got many Archies or Hoxteders frogs to spare either. So are they being affected? Yeah, so they... They have been shown to, um, they have tested positive for chytrid fungus. Oh dear. Um, and actually the, the Archie frog in the Coromandel range between 96 and 2001 declined by about 88%, um, and which is thought to be related to the chytrid fungus that sort of swept through the Coromandel. Oh dear. Yeah. 
they they seem to have stabilized that population um, and maybe recovering and and it's looking like they may have sort of some sort of immunity to them develop mm-hmm. some sort of immunity to this fungus uh, Hoxtetus frogs are a little bit different in that uh, they can carry chytrid um, they have a bacteria isolate in their skin that actually inhibits the growth of the the chytrid or, or the proliferation of the chytrid on the skin. Good for them. Yeah, so they, they're not affected at all, really. Brilliant. And the Hamilton's frog, um, I I think it probably hasn't reached the Hamilton's frog. Right. I, I, yeah, well, you wouldn't it. want it to. If you lost 80% of the Hamilton's frogs, you have less than one frog, probably. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a bit of research going into looking at, at uh, the chytrids in that species, mm. but... Okay, uh, we didn't mention the species of the uh, exotic frogs. They're fun and marvellous creatures, really, in their own way. Where have they come from? We've got the green and golden bell frog. Where's that from? So that's from the east coast of Australia. Okay. Yep, they're all Australian, actually. <laughs> okay, and the southern bell frog, that's everywhere. So if you're late at night down in southwestland and you hear them, it's probably that. Yep, that's right. So. They actually they, they've declined quite heavily in the South Island. They introduced frogs because of this chytrid, mm-hmm. um, but they they certainly more widespread than our natives. Okay, and interesting thing about the green and golden bell frog all over the north north of the North Island and just uh, a location in the middle of Tianau it looks. Tianau, yeah. So that's actually when we were preparing this book, um, a, a friend and colleague of mine uh, had a little pond and he started hearing these calls, which he believed were the green and golden bell frog and did a bit of investigating and he found that there was a population surviving in his pond um that population has since crashed so how did they get there yeah good question i mean the 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 introduced frogs are moved around in the pet trade you can you know really buy them on the internet and and they get posted and tadpoles get moved around so yeah so they they spread pretty rapidly so it got there via the internet (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, there are some wonderful, rare and very, very special early Maori depictions of turtles thought to be from the seafaring time and tropical knowledge. So that's, you know, the the colonists, the first human colonists in New Zealand. It's amazing. They found that waka from an ocean-going vessel with a turtle carved on it yeah well. um but we do have turtles that that come and visit here yep yeah we sure do uh, five species one of those species has resident population of juveniles in new zealand waters all year round um, that's the green turtle mm-hmm. uh, and you that is often seen while snorkeling around um, uh, northland and poor knights islands and that okay um the other the other Four species are again they're vagrants. They're considered natives, but they they're vagrants and they turn up here, you know, a couple of times a year. Um, Kelly Salton's often involved in rescuing and um, getting those animals back to health and then okay. releasing them. Is it kind of like the limit of their range though down here? Uh, yeah, the waters generally is, is a bit cold for them. None of them again breed. Um, the green turtles migrate here, the juveniles migrate and spend their time feeding in the New Zealand waters um, as kind of act as a nursery and then they head back to the Pacific and um, New Caledonia and such. Uh, the leatherback turtle, which is the, the biggest of the turtles, uh, is a big pelagic animal and that can actually, it, it spends its time in open ocean and it's frequently found in New Zealand waters um, and it can deal with the cold temperatures. So, All right.
Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, the book is Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand. It's the field guide and it's a cracker. Uh, one of the compilers, Dylan Van Winkle, has been our guest. Uh, fascinating information, good stuff. And anything you want to add? Because I've, I've dragged you back for a second go at this, which has been marvellous because we left a lot out. So I don't want to, don't leave anything on the field, Dylan. Is yeah. there anything you want to say? No, no, not really. I mean, we've covered most of it other than, you know, Christmas is coming up and uh, if you're looking for a, you know, a great guide for your kids or even for yourself, yeah. go yeah. check it out. It's available at all good bookstores. Good one. Well done. Please the marketing department. <laughs> and we've got a copy to give away if you want one for a Christmas gift. Or you should get it anyway. Uh, but here you go. Oh, just call now. 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. And uh, no hoops to go through. Don't need to make it difficult. Um, good luck. We'll just take the first caller who wants said book, Reptiles and Amphibians of New Zealand, the field guide. So thank you very much, Auckland University Press and Dylan Van Winkle and the team that put it together, Marlene Bailing and Rod Hitchmark. So Dylan, cheers. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks, Graham. Zealand is yours. Go there now. The Weekend Variety Wireless. The Marston Fund, we've been following some of the grants. They're quite substantial to blue sky science research, basic research, and there have been some fascinating um, prospects on the table. One that really stands out on the face of it has been pretty unusual. Drug trading on the dark side of the net. Associate Professor Chris Wilkins from Massey University has joined himself 836,000 over three years uh, to study what's going on. The, well, Chris, you must be delighted to pass muster on the Marsden Grant. It's a competitive field and this is an unusual uh, subject. Um, yeah, we're, we're actually really, um, really happy about it. Um, as you said, it's really competitive. Um, and um, it's always a real um, honour to get this kind of um, support. What is the dark web? How do you get on it? Uh, well, dark, the dark web is essentially the part of the internet that you um, can't access with normal search engines like Google and things like that. So, you, so it, um, it takes a little bit of technical expertise, but it's not too much for someone who knows a little bit about computers. And then if you want to access some of the sites that we're going to look into, they usually encourage you to get some encryption technology as well. Okay. What happens on the dark web? Um, all kinds of um, clandestine things. Um, the thing we're most interested in is um, purchasing of um, illegal drugs. Um, but there's also things, you know, um, like purchasing explosives, um, also, um, paedophilia images and, and things like that. Oh, Jesus. Oh, good luck. Yeah, so uh, it can, can be <laughs> pretty scary place, yeah. Okay. Um, now, if you're trying to find out what's going on with, with um, drug trafficking on the dark web, if users on the dark web, I understand you've got all this encryption, people know what they're doing when they go there, they're computer savvy. Yep. How do you actually get stuff? How would I buy a gram of heroin? from the internet if people someone's got to hand it to me don't they well um the, it, everything's encrypted so you can't trace the ip address of the people that are buying and selling but apart from that it almost works a similar very similar to any online um, retail outlet so you have um, listings that are available and you have the prices and what products 
and then people purchase those and then they leave um, customer comments at the bottom about how much quality the product was and how reliable it was when it got to you. But yeah, you're right, that essentially just like any online shopping, um, you uh, purchase the item and then it gets posted to you through the international mail system. Ah, okay. I'm thinking this might be easy to um, get to the bottom of or nab those that are breaking the law. Why don't the cops just go undercover and nab them on the on the dark web? They've got it posted from somewhere. Trace it. Can they do that? Um, well, part, part of the issue is the volume of postal packages. So, um, so these days, you know, people are lots of people are buying online. So you particularly, I mean, not so much in New Zealand, but in, in certainly in Europe and US, you're talking about a massive amount of um, package delivery going on. Um, and as I said, all the all the retailers and the sites are encrypted. Um, police have over time tried to have been able to take down a number of the sites. Uh, so, like you might have heard, the original Silk Road was taken down, and but that tends to be um, based on other kinds of investigation where they physically identify the person who's the administrator rather than um, breaking the encryption, which is actually, as, as far as everyone knows, is still pretty solid. Okay. Um, what about New Zealand on the dark web? In the blurb, it says no one studied what's going on. Yeah, that's right. So this 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 what what makes the study really exciting is that at the moment we really don't know almost anything about what's happening in New Zealand. Um, and the reason it's interesting because you know if you you think about it in theory these dark web sites um, would actually be really attractive to places like New Zealand that are geographically isolated. Mm. Um, some types of drugs you can't get in New Zealand just because we're kind of away from the smuggling ring. So things like cocaine. Um, really good MDMA. So you would think that this would be, you know, quite a good opportunity for um, drug users. So, and some of the research that's been done in Australia has actually found um, that Australia is actually leading the world in terms of number, um, the level of utilisation of dark webs. And in Australia, they've actually found an eternal dark web site that basically it's just Australian drug dealers selling to Australians. Oh, the dark, so dark web. Yeah, yeah. So there's... um. So there's some really um, important questions to ask about where New Zealand is fitting into that and what impact it's having on the local drug market and um, and what's going on in terms of in terms of that. Okay, even in the drug world, what about privacy breaching, the ethics of the internet? If this goes to court, could it be used in evidence if you've um, breached someone's privacy, that sort of thing? You've got to be careful? Uh, f- from the research angle, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, as I said, everyone's encrypted on that site, so we we won't be able to identify anyone just as much as all the participants and, and the police can't identify anyone. We won't be able to. So what we do essentially is we, we just scrape the site, so it just basically records all the public listings that are on the site, what products are for sale, what are the prices. Um, so everyone's privacy is completely protected and this, I mean, everyone remains anonymous because, no right. of course, they're really focused on doing that. So they've got all types of encryption um, security arrangements going on. Okay, so you don't have the computer grunt uh, to break any encryption? Oh, no, the, 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 um, the Tor um, security um, encryption software that's used... As far as we know, no one's been able to break that. Right. So it was actually originally developed by the American military, and as far as everyone knows, it's it's, it's secure. So 
I mean, we're definitely not in a position to be able to do that. Yeah. No, no, you've got the right al- mathematical algorithm using your primes, and 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 you're, you're probably pretty good. Um, so, or just wait for a quantum computer, and then everything will be broken. Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it's it's quite it's a really tough thing to break because it basically routes your IP address through lots of. Um, other routers before it gets to the actual final destination so it's really oh. incredibly difficult to do anything about so um and um it, it's a it's, a, it's a, a perennial question though that whether can anyone do it but to date as far as everyone knows uh the, the tor software is secure yeah yep okay wastewater analysis this is interesting uh let's just sniff the water and find out what people are taking you're doing this as well yeah, so, so so obviously the darknet is, is really um, clandestine and it's very difficult to study. So, um, and as I said, the encryption's really um, really um, strong. So it's not going to be a matter of you know just doing what we just talked about. So what we've we, we've just we've done is quite innovative. We've tried to come up this from different angles. So we've started with the darknet sites themselves, but we're looking at wastewater to, because we really want to see. You know, if people really are, as I said, buying all these drugs that you previously couldn't get in New Zealand, they really are buying them from the dark net and they're using them, then we can pick that out with wastewater and say, well, in, you know, in fact, based on consumption of drugs, it looks like there's this new network of supply that isn't the traditional physical markets that we used to. Because everyone uses the toilet. That's, that's right. And, and the, the thing about that is... Um, Again, it's completely anonymous, and it's um, yeah. it's it's you know it basically we tested the sewage treatment inlet pipe, so it covers the entire population. It's non-intrusive; yeah. no one can be identified, so it has all those kind of advantages. All right, uh, are there any particular drugs that you're wanting to focus on? Well, as we've been talking about, um, the drugs we're, we're most interested in are drugs that are sold on the dark net but you can't get through physical drug markets here in New Zealand. So cocaine is is the the high on the list. Yeah. Uh, MDMA, but there might be a whole lot of new psychoactive substances where, um, you know, that we can see them being advertised on the dark net, but when we talk talk about physical markets, there's no one actually selling them here in New Zealand. Right. Well, it's fascinating stuff. It was said, I think, was it in the 1980s that uh, the Thames... Uh, if you wanted to, you know, just downstream from the city of London, uh, if you could distill that, it might be worth it because you could um, recapture a whole lot of cocaine. There was so much in the Thames. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we measure is actually metabolite, so oh. um, residual, so it's not actually the generally the parent drug. But, oh, um, okay. But, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Well, fascinating stuff. What do you do for yep. a day job? I'm just wondering, a, a professor of what? Uh, well, actually, my PhD is in economics, and that's, and I work at a public health research group that does. Uh, we do a lot of research on drug use and drug markets, and um, I mean, one of the angles that makes this project really interesting is because if you think about uh, the traditional drug markets, or physical markets, just you know, face-to-face physical markets, often you know, pyramids that we all hear about in terms of drug trafficking groups. So this online environment is really changing the game. It's a paradigm shift, just like, you know, when you used to go to shops and actually purchase things, compared to now you can go to Amazon online. So that's really fundamentally changed how the drug market's going to work. So 
Yeah. This is really at the start of that, so it's, it's really exciting, yeah. All right, thank you very much. Associate Professor yep. Chris Wilkins from Massey University. Off you go and start your study. Thank you. Thank you, yep. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Maybe you were lucky enough to go along and see David Byrne's stuff uh, as he was touring New Zealand. I've just heard so many good things about it. If you did see it or maybe you're missing it this evening if you're listening live or maybe just come home from said gig. I think it's the last one in New Zealand he was doing. Anyway, um, we have a bit of a celebration of one of the finest albums Talking Head ever produced, Grant Smithy's has it, I think, up tippy tops. It is a really beautiful thing. More songs about buildings and food. Uh, from 1978, an album turning 40. This was broadcast way, way back earlier at the beginning of this year. Uh, but this is an occasion, I think, apt enough to give it another spin. Okay, uh, new sport and weather coming at you with the speed of light. And then we'll go straight to Talking Heads. More songs about buildings and food.